I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Good morning, everyone who listens to us in the morning, and good afternoon, and good evening to everybody else. It's a lot of times they might be listening to us. I try to go for full coverage. Future, the past, who knows? People are not listening to this before we put it out. I do know that. Time travelers. Nope. That yep. was the last episode. We're, we're done with that. So what, what is this episode, by the well, way? We got we got an uplifting topic. Sure. Diseases. Cool. Love it. Can't get enough of them. But it's uplifting because there's vaccines. Oh, okay. <laughs> Can't get enough of those either, I guess. Uh, we are specifically going to uh, talk about the diseases that you get immunized from, mm-hmm. immunized by the DTaP vaccine. Uh-huh. And kind of the history of those diseases and the vaccines that have come for them. Okay. And where things are now. <laughs> I'm guessing that's an acronym. Yes. I'm going to go out on a limb there. Do you know what it might stand for? Uh, or do you know what it... Don't try this at home. Home. Yeah. So the DTaP vaccine uh, covers diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Oh. So we are going to talk about those. <laughs> um, have you had your DTaP? I definitely got all my childhood shots. Does that require adult boosters? If so, I might be behind. Uh, there actually, yes, you should. Okay. There is a booster version you should get every ten years. Uh, that typically doesn't include for adults the pertussis, but that is like a separate thing that you should, nowadays they're saying you should get if you interact with children. Okay, then in that case, I think I'm due, honestly. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I'll get some plates run and see if what my uh, antibodies look like. Uh, well, and especially the, the tetanus portion of it, mm-hmm. you are supposed to get like every 10 years. Okay. And I know I had my last one in... I think it was 2007, so I am due. There you go, 2007. It was a landmark year. Thanks for the memories came out. That's when I had that giant piece of wood in my foot. (laughs) Oh well, I guess broke my face. I guess that is more relevant to talking about tetanus shots than say the Sweeney Todd film. No, no, yeah, yeah. Shrek the Third. I had to have a tetanus shot. Six Feet Under listeners will know that I am a I am an expert in the year 2007. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We're not really going to talk about 2007, but okay. that's okay. <laughs> we are going to start with diphtheria. Okay. Okay. So what is diphtheria? Do you know? Drosophilia is, the, <laughs> is flies. So it's not that. It's not flies. It's no. not flies. <laughs> it's not. It's not a fly. It's not something caused by a fly. It was once uh, one of the most common childhood afflictions you could get, mm-hmm. and it still is in some parts of the world. Now, um, the number one childhood affliction is gaming addiction. Sure. Monitor your screen time, kids. <laughs> uh, it is caused by uh, a bacterium that creates a toxin that damages the body's tissue. Mm-hmm. including the really gross part of creating a thick gray substance that can spread over nasal passages, tonsils, your larynx, etc., and, like, block airways. Oh, um, so it's that fringe episode. Basically. Okay. The one problem with researching this episode is all the medical pictures that just had to appear <laughs> on crap. That's why you limit your screen time. We are <gasps> audio only, and you should thank us. It's also why I started with these things, because... They're not quite as gross to look at. <laughs> so when when is our episode on the plague? So you can look at all those boobos. Uh, I don't know. This could end up as a 
a series of let's talk about vaccines and diseases. I don't sure, know. Sure, sure. Alternate between Disney and this. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they have in common? <laughs> Measles outbreaks. Um, this this film, this substance, um, mm-hmm. can block airways. I think I mentioned. Um, it can also uh, this toxin can get into the bloodstream and damage organs if left too long. In in Spain, I don't know if it's currently known as this or just like used to be known as this. Um, Any of our Spanish listeners, please feel free to write in. Yeah, I I saw this reference several times. Algaritio, which means the strangler. Oh, okay, that's my favorite luchador. Yeah, because it's gonna like strangle you to death mm-hmm. and just kill you. So it is something that is transferred person to person, and a person who has not been treated with antibiotics can spread it for weeks. And how is it spread? Like, uh, if you like, sneeze around yeah. somebody, or do they have to touch the, like, gray mucus film? No, all you need is, like, a sneeze or a cough okay. and some transfer of fluid like that. Okay. Yeah, they don't have to, like, reach in and, like, touch the gray thing in your throat. Oh, it's delicious. Yeah. Um. So, in uh, 1921, uh, the U.S. Uh, recorded over 200,000 cases and around uh, 15,000 deaths. It was the third leading cause of death in children in um, England and Wales in the 20s. And actually, in 2007, I forgot, we are talking about 2007. There you go. Um, there were about 4,200 cases reported worldwide. So down uh-huh. significantly. Yeah. But that's also at the same time they believe that is incredibly under reported. Um, but even so, going down from 200,000 in one country to like... Two percent of that number worldwide. Yes, that's an incredible reduction. But again, they, that is not an accurate number. Sure, because on sure. um, you know certain more, there's not as much reporting and statistics of what is actually being passed around. So we're we're gonna look at kind of the development of not the development, the history of <laughs> diphtheria. Diphtheria uh, was invented by. Well, it wasn't invented. You know. It, <laughs> Just goes back really, really far. We're not going to go all the way back. To the beginning of time? But we're going to go back to uh, 1613. Sure, sure. um, When there's definitely uh, recorded evidence of there being a Spanish epidemic of diphtheria. Of El Garatillo. Yes. In 1659, Cotton Mather uh, wrote about it in his journal. This is Salem Witch Trial Cotton Mather. Yes, yes. Character from The Crucible, also real person, Cotton Mather. Yes. Okay. Real one wrote about it. Not... <laughs> not. Yeah, I, I don't remember there being a subplot about uh, him talking about diseases. Yeah. It's been a while since high school, maybe. Yeah. In 1735, um, an epidemic swept New England and entire families were wiped out. And a New Hampshire town around this time uh, had 32% of their children under the age of 10 die. Um, so back then there wasn't much to be done. Well, that's um, some comfort, I guess. It's not your fault. What could you do? There really wasn't anything you could do. I have a description, um, that was from the Boston Gazette in, uh, March of 1735 about mm-hmm. what you could do. Would you like to read this? Sure. Method of cure of throat distemper. What is used is as follows. First, be sure that a vein be opened under the tongue. And if that can't be done, open a vein in the arm, which must first be done, as all other means will be ineffectual. 
Then take borax or honey to bathe or anoint the mouth and throat, and lay on the throat a plaster vinquintum dialthe, to drink a decotion of devil's bit or robin's plantain, with some sal prunel dissolved therein, as often as the patient will drink. If the body be costive, use a clyster agreeable to the nature of the distemper. I have known many other things used, especially a root called physic root, fillery or five-leaved physic, also a root that I know no name for. That's helpful! <laughs> or only canker root, but be sure and let blood, and that under the tongue. We have many times made blisters under the arms, but that has proved sometimes dangerous. Yeah, all this sounds sometimes dangerous. <laughs> um, so that that's what you had, that's what you could do. The expert opinion you might seek was to cut a vein open under the tongue. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm gonna guess that that's not what, uh current medical uh, literature would suggest nope definitely not um so in 1826 diphtheria finally got its like name uh congratulations we baked a cake it says diphtheria on it so you know how to spell it 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 was known by you know many different names up until this time Mm -hmm. um and the the name came from um a french doctor named pierre bretonneau and it was a much more French version of diphtheria, but that's what it was. <laughs> Diphtherite? Sure. Okay. Yeah. The origin uh, came from the Greek word for leather. Uh-huh. Um, and this was to describe that, like, gray thing that kind of took over your throat. The pseudomembrane? Yes, that's what I was going to say. Okay. I was going to get there. I can say that one. Okay. <laughs> you have no faith. <laughs> The, the gray thing that mm-hmm. kind of covered the throat, the pseudomembrane, it, it appeared kind of leathery, apparently. Ah. I didn't take a close enough look at those pictures to see if that was <laughs> correct. I'll take their word on it. Sure, sure. Pierre was also um, made record of the first uh, successful use of uh, tracheotomy in a case of someone having diphtheria. Um, it had been... Something that was around and had been used to treat other things, mm-hmm. um, but wasn't really a method that was used to treat patients with diphtheria. Um, and he had attempted it several times, and it didn't go very well. <laughs> but then he did, and it went okay. Okay. <laughs> so mean, we write a report on it. Practice makes perfect. And to be perfectly fair, it is, in a sense, an incision under the tongue. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, pr- pretty far uh, very, under. Very far. Like, but, <laughs> but, you know, they didn't specify how far under the tongue. Right. They didn't even know the name of all the roots. So maybe. <laughs> um, so in 1882, we had our first meeting of the Anti-Vaccination League of America in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so just in case you're wondering, apparently the crazy people have been around forever. What, there was only like one, maybe two vaccines back then? What did they have to worry about? Well, you know, the the speakers at the time said that smallpox was not spread by contagion, but by people being dirty. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think they had already like kind of figured out at this time, well, no, that's not the case. Right. So in uh, 1883, uh, Edwin 
Klebs, a a Swiss-German pathologist, identified and described the bacterium that causes diphtheria. And in 1885, uh, an American doctor uh, by the name of Joseph P. O'Dwyer was the first to introduce intubation for treatment of a blocked larynx Mm -hmm. um, instead of a tracheotomy. And he not only described how to do it, but developed instruments to perform it. Okay. And it quickly became the thing to do instead. What's what is it? What is intubation? It's like the tube. Okay. So you open, like it goes through your airway, so that way you can pump air in and out. Ah, uh, all right. Instead of having to put a you know a cut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing you see them do on all every doctor show with a big bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the little metal thing that goes in your mouth, and the, then the tube goes in that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like that. So, much safer, you weren't cutting a hole in someone's neck. It's basically every other episode of Scrubs, sometimes more often. Yes. I think, yeah. I really want to know what the budget is for those things <laughs> on, like, medical shows. It's got to yeah. be, they have to spend the most amount of money on those things. That's why healthcare is so expensive. The supply is all being absorbed by, by television programs. Oh. Yeah. You want to blame anybody, blame Grey's Anatomy. So, in 1894, um, two Cincinnati physicians treated a two-year-old girl successfully that had diphtheria with an antitoxin. Ooh. Um, so this um, is something that was being created in Europe and Germany and overseas, mm-hmm. but was not being created in the U.S. at the time. Um, and apparently they had, like, gone to Europe and gotten some when they were on, like, vacation and brought it back. Some people shop at the weirdest souvenir stores. <laughs> and they had to, like, basically beg the family, like, can... We let us do this. We have the serum. It uh-huh. will work. I don't know. Do you have any roots out back? <laughs> I heard good things about several roots. And I can understand why they might want some roots when you hear how the antitoxin is made. Okay. They would grow diphtheria bacteria in a lab mm-hmm. and they would harvest the toxin and then inject it in a horse. Uh-huh. And then the horse's blood would produce antitoxins, which they would collect. And then separate out the antitoxins to make the serum. <laughs> Which is like, whoa, who the hell thought about doing that? Let me just inject a horse. I mean, you don't want to ask how the sausage gets made. <laughs> I, I do think that uh, diphtheria bacteria is probably the worst sequel song to Caribbean Amphibian. Yeah. Yeah. There, there should be a schoolhouse rock song to <laughs> diphtheria bacterium. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be very catchy. Um, so the following year, uh, production would actually start in the States to make it as well. That's great. We got Hooray. an antitoxin. It's very helpful. It, it can save a lot of people. It dissolves your pseudomembrane. But it's not without some problems. Um, in 1901, 13 St. Louis children died from contaminated antitoxin. Uh, the horse that was used um, died of tetanus. Uh-huh. And instead of discarding the antitoxin, they just sent it to a doctor who used it, and then the children died. But this, and then another around the same time outbreak of tetanus that was mm-hmm. linked to contaminated smallpox vaccines, led to the first modern uh, federal legislation to control like drug production uh-huh. and start to set up safety procedures. I mean, at least the kids didn't die of diphtheria. I I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> it did its job. Uh, so in uh, 1905, 
Clemens Perquet and Bella Schick described a clinical illness they called serum sickness. Ooh, it's catchy. Yeah. The the newspapers are going to run with that one. Yeah. So children that were treated with large quantities of the antitoxin were experiencing symptoms of swelling, rash, fever, joint pain. Mm Mm-hmm. These are, you know, now things we understand is like the immune system mistaking the antitoxin for, you know, something that shouldn't be there and trying to fight it off. This sounds like really terrible, but it is something <laughs> where it didn't actually like once the the antitoxin was used, like the kids were okay, they were fine. It didn't mm-hmm. have any lasting effects. But this did start um, people looking into and creating a new understanding of allergies and you know, how the immune system works and the way it defends itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was going to say, yeah, that, that sounds kind of like they discovered an early drug allergy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And luckily it wasn't, you know, fatal. It just was <laughs> uncomfortable for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1914, um, William H. Park uh, studied the use of toxin-antitoxin mixture. Uh-huh. Um, where... You got to be careful or else it will explode. And it was supposed to be, you know, like a better, a better option, um, not as harsh on the body. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had to get the balance just right because if it wasn't, instead of like getting, you know, immunity, you were just gonna like give the person diphtheria. <laughs> <laughs> That's a needle that you want to thread properly, I yeah. suppose. Park actually after the record high uh, U.S. cases in the early 1920s that Uh we talked about earlier with like 200,000 people. Right. Um, He launched a massive program in New York City uh, to Schick test uh, school children. So the the Schick test was invented by Bella Schick, who we Uh talked about, Uh in 1913. And it was where you put a small amount of the toxin under the skin. And if there was a reaction, it would mean that there had never been exposure. So, but if there was no reaction, it means that they had been exposed and that they already probably had some immunity. So sort of similar to like the, the TB test, the, yeah. the poke test for tuberculosis. Yes. Okay. So that one, I know you can definitely get false positives on a lot. <laughs> the TB test, you mean? Yeah. But the TB test says like, you have tuberculosis or you don't. <laughs> not not you you have i have immunity, immunity or, or you, i don't or you don't as i said he wanted to do the test on school children and then right. offer immunization with tat which is the toxin antitoxin mixture that he was right. working on that hopefully he got right yes now this was not um something that was going to be easily done because there were a lot of people that had to agree to it mm-hmm, families mm-hmm. schools the city but uh, 180,000 children were involved. Huh. Half were tested for diphtheria. And, you know, if they didn't have any immunity, they were given TAT. Um, and then the other half were just, you know, the placebo group. Nothing was done right. to them. The, the control group. The control group. So uh, in the next five months, the half that didn't get tested were four times as likely to develop the disease. Um, so they were able to do some study here. Mm-hmm. Uh, afterwards, Park la- launched a campaign to notify parents of immunization opportunities for like the younger group of kids that weren't yet school aged. Mm-hmm. Um, Forty five thousand like postcards were sent to homes throughout New York City area. 
Uh, so um, to offer immunizations. This is a scary disease. Mm-hmm. This is something that may well kill you. There are hundreds of thousands of people getting it just last year. Yes. And now you're getting a postcard that says, hey, your kid can get stuck real quick before they even go to school. And school is a place where all these kids may or may not have diphtheria and they're coughing on each other. Yeah. Flu season in a school is a war zone. But, like, the modern flu is pretty safe compared to diphtheria. Yes. <laughs> and especially compared to, you know, diphtheria then. Right. I mean, <laughs> just the, the way people treat head lice and... Oh, head lice is fucking terrifying. And it's just itchy. It will not kill They're you. bugs, though. It's gross. <laughs> but my point is, like, if you... you Imagine yourself in that position. I, I get this postcard. I'm going to get shots for my two-year-old so so they are protected before they go into this Petri dish of public school. Ideally. Ideally. Um, I'm sure there's still a lot of people who are like, give me some root. <laughs> I think I'll stick with the tracheotomy. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was good enough for my dad. Yeah. Yeah. In 1923, uh, Gaston... Roman, a veterinarian at an institute in France, mm-hmm. developed diphtheria toxoid. toxoid. And was this toxoid developed with the use of five dozen eggs? Okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's egg in it. Okay. Okay. I didn't look at the ingredients list. Around this time, another doctor in London independently developed basically the same thing as well. Uh-huh, uh, Alexander uh-huh. Thomas Glennie. But the creation of this toxoid... Um, would be great because it was <laughs> like it's awesome, it, folks. Toxoids, we love them. It was it it was a simpler way, a safer way. Uh, it was a simpler and more effective way to prevent diphtheria. Oh well, that's what we're after. Um, and it was used until like for years and years to come. Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna talk about a, a big event, a big news story mm-hmm. of the twenties. That has to do with diphtheria that someone actually wrote into us about forever ago oh. in connection to a completely different prompt. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to start telling the story and then eventually it'll come up. So in 1925, uh, in Nome, Alaska, uh, which is about two degrees from the Arctic Circle, mm-hmm. uh, a local physician saw several children die from what he thought was tonsillitis, but then more got sick and he started to see that gray white, you know, pseudomembrane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like, oh, dang it, it's diphtheria. This is really <laughs> bad. Uh, especially because several months before, he realized that the antitoxin he had um, expired. Oh. So he put in an order for more, but it never arrived before the, like, port iced over for winter. Right. So he had to send a telegram asking for a delivery of more because mm-hmm. they were on the verge of an epidemic. Yeah, yeah. And they really couldn't handle it because a few years back, uh, there was an outbreak of the Spanish flu, which, hey, check out that episode of previous <laughs> history, honeys. And it wiped out 50% of the native Alaskan population of the town, mm-hmm. 8% of Alaska's native population across the board, um, who were not immune to such, or really had no, you know, immunity at all built up to things like this. Mm-hmm. And then, you know the rest of the population, too, was affected. Um, so they had already had a lot of deaths within a few years, and he was like, this is going to be bad. I mean, you either get us that antitoxin or 
uh, we're going to have a real run on coffins. Yep. So ship some of those instead. Um, so units of antitoxin were shipped uh, by train to Ninana, Ninana, which is about 674 miles from Nome. It had to be then transported by 20 mushers and 120 sled dogs over the course of five and a half days. And if this is starting to sound familiar, you might have seen a movie about Balto. <laughs> <laughs> Um, someone wrote into us about Balto in relation to, like, movies about dogs or something. <laughs> or whatever that prompt was we had. Maybe uh -huh. it was space, Soviet space dogs. Maybe. Dog heroes. I don't remember what the prompt was, but I know someone wrote us about Balto. So, yeah, so this was, uh, became known as the Serum Run or the Great Race of Mercy or the Balto movie. Um, <laughs> you know, at the time, it was newspapers and then radio. So it was, like, plastered everywhere. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. the, the antitoxin did get there, um, after a grueling five and a half days where like a lot of dogs died and a lot of people got frostbite, but it got there. The official death count was five, mm -hmm. but the doctor who worked there said that the numbers are probably much higher because much of the, um, Alaskan, you know, native population didn't always report their deaths to the town. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they took care of things on their own. So I thought that was interesting. I was like, oh, Balto, yeah. <laughs> I forgot that was about diphtheria. I don't know if they ever, do they ever even mention diphtheria in that movie? I don't even know. I don't think the goose can pronounce that word. Anyways, moving on. Um, in 1935, the toxoid immunization uh, that we talked about before Balto, um, <laughs> became uh, more widespread, mm -hmm. um, but the use of TAT continued, and this caused like a lot of confusion among doctors and the general population of like, how many boosters did a person need, and, and when was someone actually immune? Because they were different. Right, D different schedules, different doses yeah. for these different things. And I'm sure that probably caused some issues. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of, like, death actually happened from that, I'm going to assume. So in 1948 in Kyoto, Japan, um, there was a really bad uh, incident where out of 606 children, um, 68 unfortunately died uh, after immunization due to um, improper manufacturing of the toxoid. Um, it reverted to the toxin. Uh-huh. But this did lead to a lot of safeguards put in place for uh, manufacturing of future drugs. Well, at least there's a nice silver lining to one in ten children in town dying of a preventable disease. Gotta look on the bright side. Um, in 1974, there was an outbreak of cutaneous diphtheria, which is like the skin. Mm-hmm. It's really gross. Do not look up pictures. Okay. Um, and this happened in Seattle, Washington. Uh, and this form of diphtheria typically only happens in tropical regions. Mm -hmm. uh, but it can occur in areas of low immunization. So apparently Seattle was not a great place to be in the 70s. They, they were lapsing on their schedules. Um, in 1994, the uh, former Soviet Union saw an epidemic after a decline in immunizations and then waiving immunity. Mm -hmm. um, so in 1990, they saw about 1,200 cases of dip diphtheria. Mm -hmm. In 1994, there were almost 40,000. And this is what happens when you privatize the healthcare industry. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in 
2015, uh, Spain reported its first case of diphtheria since 1986. Uh, a six-year-old unvaccinated child died uh, even after getting the antitoxin treatment. Mm. Um, and several of the people he was in contact with tested as carriers but were not ill. Um, and they had to be treated as well so the bacteria would, you know, not be in their bodies and be passed on to anyone else. I mean, the the first case at all in 29 years... Is great. That's incredible. Just think, though, if he would have been vaccinated, he wouldn't have gotten it. I mean, I, I don't know the story. Maybe you know more. But, like, there is a there is a chance that this is a child that could not be vaccinated for whatever reason. There is a chance. Uh, an immune disorder, an yes. allergy. And, the, you know, the people who people who cannot get a vaccine, mm-hmm. that they are the reason why those of us that can need to. Right. And have to. We, we are their vaccine, in a yes. sense. We, we are their immunity. We have to protect the people that can't. And that's kind of a trend mm-hmm. in uh, what we're going to talk about a little later with I, whooping cough. <laughs> I, I bring that up because if there's only one case, not one fatality, yes. but one case in th- in 30 years it makes me think there isn't a thriving anti-vax enclave within spain not spain at least apparently, not at the time seattle don't <laughs> go there well in the 70s but we have some other things we're going to talk about later sure, though that sure. are going to make it a little uh, questioning um so we're going to move on though to our next uh our next part of the dtap mm-hmm. the tetanus the, the, the t part so tetanus, though, is a disease of the nervous system uh, caused by a bacterium that produces an exotoxin, mm-hmm. well, produces two different exotoxins, <laughs> and one of them is what causes the symptoms. So the, the other one is just kind of an underachiever, <laughs> lies around on the couch all day, watching Twitch streams. Yeah. Um, so some of the symptoms include lockjaw, stiffness, problem swallowing, severe muscle spasms, and seizure-like activities. Um, 10 to 20% of cases result in death. Um, and uh, neato- natal tetanus is a big worry in some areas of the world. Mm. Tetanus, however, is a bit different than the other things we're talking about today because it is not something that is passed person to person. The The bacteria is, a wide, is widespread mm-hmm. in uh, soil, intestines, animal feces um it can be found on skin it's like in the natural world the, the thing i always heard about you know growing up as a kid is watch out for rusty nails i thought that like tetanus lived in rust like there's just something about iron oxide that makes it really hospitable to you know, spores is it spores it, it's, it's spores okay but- I did not see anything about rust. What? what? <laughs> I saw nothing about rust specifically. Like, um, like yeah, you, you you play around and with some broken wood because that's my childhood. And, and then people are like, oh, watch out. You're going to need a tetanus shot. Cause- well, okay. So here's the thing that's interesting too, though, is you're more likely to get tetanus mm-hmm. in cases of from a like small wound. Okay. Than from a major wound. So, like, if you were to, I don't know, step on a rusty nail, you're probably going to go to the hospital. You're mm-hmm. probably not going to get tetanus because they're going to clean it properly. And then maybe give you, you a, tetanus, a shot. tetanus shot. <laughs> you get a small cut <laughs> mm-hmm. on your finger. Oh, and so you don't seek assistance. 
you don't clean it properly, probably. You don't bandage it. You don't go get your tetanus booster. Ah, I see. So, um, so it's a behavioral thing. It's not like the mechanics of large versus small wounds. Yeah, it's it's the way we care for it and okay. worry about okay. them. So it is funny that they're always like, oh, we're, watch out for those rusty nails. Well, I'm probably going to be safer if I get a rusty nail or for something else. Honestly, the bacteria is very hardy. Um, the mature bacteria can survive um, up to 15 minutes in temperatures of 250 degrees, and it is resistant to antiseptic um, in a lot of cases, if it's mature. Mm-hmm. If it's not so mature, Well, that's the problem chances. with the other toxin. It's just not mature enough. Yeah. yeah. And uh, tetanus is not something that, you know, if you if you get it and you survive it, you have immunity. No, you could still get it many more times. <laughs> and it's something that will, you know, there's there's many like diseases out there where we're like, you know, it's eradicated here, it's eradicated there. Tetanus will never be eradicated because it's in the environment. And this is something- That sounds like quitter talk to me. <laughs> I don't I if we dedicate ourselves, we, we can do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the vaccine for this, as we know it now, was invented in the 1920s, um, and it is combined in several different ways, including the DTaP and a few other versions. Um, for adults, there's like a version that's really just tetanus and diphtheria that's available. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get a tetanus shot just on its own. And again, as a reminder, you should about every 10 years, yeah. maybe sooner sometimes, but 10 years is the going, uh, the going thing. Um, and so we're going to move on to the last part, pertussis, oh. also known as whooping cough. The the deet wook. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The wook uh, stands for whooping cough. Yeah. It is a highly contagious uh, bacterial disease caused by a bacterium uh, called Bordetella pertussis. That's a thing that dogs can get. Bordetella? Yeah, the, the the Bordetella vaccine. You gotta get yeah. that for your dog before they can hang out with other dogs. Yeah. Hi, just popping in real quick while I edit to say that right around here, we paused the show and I did some side research and, oh, look, we're back. Bordetella, mm-hmm. the, the genus name for that bacterium, there's a very similar bacteria called Bordetella bronchoseptica. Mm-hmm. And that is the bacteria that causes a uh, uh, kennel cough in dogs. Oh. Which is why you get the Bordetella vaccine before you board your dog, before you get your permit to go in city dog parks. Uh- <laughs> don't want your dog to cough. Yeah. <laughs> Does Bordetella mean, like, coughing? I, I feel like that's what it should translate to. It, it is canon on this show that I do not know Latin. Yeah. With a uh, whooping cough, mm-hmm. uh... It comes on like a common cold symptoms, basically, Um, but then it is followed by um, weeks of severe coughing fits in very small children. There's like a a whoop sound Mm -hmm. that apparently happens when they try to breathe in, Um, and in slightly older people, it's more of a gasp. A very like distinctive kind of gasp. Yes. Um, It is nicknamed the 100-day cough, as it could last for 10 or more weeks. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I love I love coughing for a season of the year. And it's not just like cough, cough. It's like a fit where you cannot breathe. Mm-hmm. The coughs can cause vomiting. You can break ribs, hernias. 
collapsed lungs. Um, When we're saying like a fit of coughing, it is extreme. Mm -hmm. Children under the age of one might not cough, but they might have periods of not breathing. That's something (laughs) that I don't think is good for babies as a layman. I do want my babies to continue breathing. Yeah. Yes. Pertussis can occur in those who have been vaccinated. The vaccination is not... 100% effective. It is somewhere between 71 to 85% effective. Uh Um, But those who have been vaccinated might not get it. Or if they do, they usually have milder symptoms. So it's similar to the flu vaccine. Yeah, exactly. Um, And it is something where the, it does not last for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, The DTAP that we got when we were children usually lasts somewhere between three to six years. The like series of it we got. As adults, we probably actually have no immunity to it and there were a whole lot of commercials i remember like last year about how if you're around babies you should definitely get a pertussis vaccine to to protect you but also to protect those babies you're hanging out with yes yes being getting the infection um does create a little bit of a natural immunity but it does go away Mm -hmm. um and people who are vaccinated can still spread the disease even if they have no symptoms or really mild symptoms mm-hmm. so it, it's very much like the flu vaccine of like it can help yeah it can make things way better um don't you want to make things way better when this disease will break your ribs and possibly kill you um and especially because 50 percent of infected children under the age of one have to be hospitalized and one in 200 will die mm-hmm. in uh, 2015, uh, 16.22 million people worldwide were infected, um, with about 59,000 deaths, which was, is way down from the 100, 140,000 in 1990. Yeah, that's less than half. Pertussis was kind of first described in the 16th century, um, with the bacterium not being discovered until 1906. Well, we had to know what a bacterium was. <laughs> Yes. It, yeah, it kind of comes in that it order. While. Yeah. Um, it was discovered by uh, Jules uh, Burdett and Octave Gengor? Gengu? Gen- it was discovered Gen- by a Pokemon. Gengu? <laughs> what would you say? It's discovered by Django Fett. Star Wars <laughs> celebration happening now. Very close to uh, our home. I'm so distracted. Yeah. So many stormtroopers. So many stormtroopers just hanging out on the street. Yep. I saw a dude walking down when I went to yoga earlier um, up by the park. There was a dude walking down the street with like a crocheted Bubba Fett, <laughs> like ski mask. All of this excitement is just so infectious and it makes me wish that I got like a one day pass just to like be in it, T- just to say I was there, yeah. you know, too late now. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. But you'd have to be out in this beautiful snowstorm we have right now. <laughs> it's been snowing all freaking day. So In April. So I guess you know which day we recorded this on, folks. There you go. Uh, anyway, whooping cough. Whooping cough. Uh, Jules and Octave uh, tried to create a vaccine, but it wasn't effective. It didn't really work. Oh, no. Um, in the 1920s, uh, there was another weak vaccine that was developed by, uh, Lewis W. Sawyer, uh, at Evanston Hospital. Evanston, in- Illinois? Yep. Hey! But it wasn't until 1932, uh, that we got the first, like, 
real pertussis vaccine. <laughs> uh, and this was developed by Layla Denmark. Uh, she was a pediatrician in Atlanta, Georgia, and started um, studying the disease after an outbreak hit the area. And over six years, um, she did research and was published and worked in partnership with Emory University and Eli Lilly and company mm -hmm. to create this vaccine. Um, she is kind of fascinating. <laughs> um, she was born in 1898, uh, the third of 12 children. Random fact, her brother Clyde, like, is credited with shooting the only known authentic color footage of the Pearl Harbor attack. Huh. So that's kind of random. Um, but she... I thought Michael Bay did that. <laughs> um, so she was a pediatrician out of Georgia, um, a pioneering female doctor and medical researcher. Um, she originally trained to be a teacher and then went on to study chemistry and physics um, and then decided to attend medical school when her fiancé was posted to Java, but the U.S. Department of State uh, didn't allow spouses to travel to mm. that location. Mm. Um, so she's like, okay, I'll go to med medical school. I mean, she's got time. There's no man at home. <laughs> she was the only woman in 1928 to graduate in the graduating class of the Medical College of Georgia, and the third woman ever to graduate from the school with a medical degree. Mm -hmm. She went on to do a residency at Grady Memorial Hospital and became the first physician on staff when Henrietta Eggleston Hospital opened. Um, it was a pediatric hospital on the uh, Emory University campus. Mm -hmm. From 1933 to 1944, she worked on diagnosis, treatment, and immunizations for whooping, whooping cough. But then she went on to be like one of the first doctors to object to adults smoking around children and that pregnant women shouldn't really be using drugs. But the cocaine smells <laughs> so good. That's why people sniff it, right? It just really yeah. smells good? Yeah. Okay. Uh, she also was, you know, recommending that people should eat fruit instead of drinking it. And you should <laughs> drink lots of water and lots of, like, things that, you know, nowadays we're like, yeah. Yeah, we eat but... our fruit and we drink our vegetables <laughs> these days. But things back then that were kind of like, what? <laughs> she also became the world's oldest practicing pediatrician when... At the age of 103, <laughs> after a 73-year career, she retired because her eyesight was getting a little too weak to examine children's throats. Uh-huh. Um, on her birthdays through her early 100s, uh, she refused cake because she said it had too much sugar and that she hadn't eaten added sugar in 70 years. I guess it worked. <laughs> and she died at the age of 114 in 60 days. <laughs> On in uh, on April first, um, twenty twelve, mm -hmm. she was one of the hundreds oldest people ever. Yeah, uh, that, that the, tracks. The fifth oldest verified living person in in the world for a while, and the third oldest wow. in the U.S. Congratulations! <laughs> but imagine if you are one of her later patients, <laughs> and she's just looking at you and saying that. She knows 10 ways you would be dead by now <laughs> if you were your age when she was starting her career. Patients she had when she first started, their grandchildren mm -hmm. were her patients. 
Their great-grandchildren were her patients. You think when she administered the DTaP vaccine, she's like, I invented one-third of this. This is me. A little. This is a little bit of me. You're welcome. Insane. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about some other uh, really cool women involved with pertussis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Pearl Kendrick and Grace Eldering were known for researching and publishing the results of a landmark pertussis vaccine study that said that it was indeed effective. Oh, well, that's good. Um, Pearl Kendrick was an American uh, bacteriologist Mm -hmm. who was inspired to research pertussis based on the statistical data of the time um, that uh, it was killing uh, 6,000 people in the U.S., like yearly, um, and 95% were children. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was originally from Grand Rapids, which after um, spending time elsewhere getting an education and stuff, she, <laughs> mm-hmm. she came back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, worked at the Western Michigan Branch Laboratory um, with the Michigan Department of Health with uh, Grace Eldering. Now, I'm, I'm seeing that uh, Pearl Kendrick lived to be 90 years old. Grace Elderling lived to be 88. Uh-huh. They were drinking fruit juice. <laughs> That's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> um, so Grace was born in Montana to immigrant parents from Scotland and the Netherlands, and she herself got whooping cough as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and she attended the University of Montana for four semesters and had to drop out due to money. So she taught um, school for a while and then returned to get her Bachelor of Science. Mm -hmm. And she went on to teach high school. Um, And then later in life, at the age of 42, she got her PhD. There's still time. (laughs) Now, in uh, 1928, she moved to Lansing, Michigan. And together with Pearl, uh, they worked on the first large-scale controlled clinical trial for the vaccine, um, including development, testing, and then eventually um, inoculating children. Mm Mm-hmm. So they started with a cough plate uh, diagnostic where infected people were like coughing on plates and then it was sent (laughs) for confirmation. I usually put those in the dishwasher. (laughs) And this allowed them to determine um, like the time period of infection and like how long they could possibly infect someone. They worked to set up a method of quarantine for Grand Rapids that would keep outbreaks from spreading and... um, required a 25-day period of isolation for infected patients. Mm-hmm. And this became routine uh, around the, uh, uh, the county and the state. You know, funding was hard. This was during, like, the Great Depression, so there wasn't a lot going around. Um, mm-hmm. But eventually, they did get funding from the Federal Emergency Relief Program, um, some from the city government, and some private donors. And the whole experiment experiment was conducted, like, after work hours because Uh they were understaffed and they like couldn't be spared during the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of other medical professional, medical professionals like volunteered their time to help their, their general vaccine work began in 1933. Kind of like the guy we talked about earlier with Theria had to work with physicians, city officials and school admins to set up something where they could rapidly uh, inoculate children. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, those those high five lines with people running down the aisle, except it's like needle, 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 needle. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So their trial ran for three years, and uh, during that time, uh, 5,815 kids were involved. And now uh, they presented their preliminary findings at the annual American Public Health Association meeting, and many 
senior figures didn't want to endorse the vaccines. They're like, there's not enough testing. There's mm-hmm. not enough this. Probably a lot of like, your women. <laughs> um, so eventually they called in um, a consultant from their trial, which was a dude. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And a professor at uh, John Hopkins who had visited them a few times. And helped uh, create their plan for analyzing the results of the vaccine. They got people to agree, and Michigan started distributing the vaccines um, to, like, school children everywhere in, like, the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Vaccines are popping up everywhere. There's different versions. <laughs> They're in vogue in the 1930s. <laughs> well, so the American vaccine was effective, but there was an English vaccine that really wasn't mm-hmm. as effective and not working that well. So many of the people involved with this were invited to work on a committee for medical research in Great Britain to help with their development of theirs. Kendrick went on to teach at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And um, after uh, serving as chief at Western Michigan Laboratory, uh, Eldering went on to take over that position after Kendrick left. Mm-hmm. And someone else that should be mentioned in this is a woman by the name of Loni Clinton-Gordon. Um, who was born in 1915 and died in 1999. She was born in Arkansas and moved to Michigan when she was really young. Mm -hmm. And in 1939, she earned a BA in home economics and chemistry from Michigan State College, which is now MSU. Mm -hmm. She went on to have a career as a dietitian and found a job working at a mental institution in uh, Virginia. But um, according to an interview towards the end of her life, um, she said that she was treated really poorly and she returned to Grand Rapids to seek work. But it was informed by white male chefs that they would not take orders from a black female dietitian. Uh Uh-huh. What are her thoughts on fruit juice, though? (laughs) Because I noticed she only lived to 84. (laughs) Um, she was hired by Kendrick or Kendrick to um, support their pertussis study mm-hmm. and is credited with testing thousands of culture plates. Her analysis of those cultures led to the identification of a strain that enabled um, the development of an even more effective vaccine. Oh. She is also attributed to identifying that sheep blood is a key factor in processing and, like, incubating the culture on the Petri dish in the lab. Mm-hmm. She, she's someone that's not, you know, it's not the names you say, this is the people who led the study, but was super involved right. in the whole entire process. Mm-hmm. So in the 1940s, um, the pertussis vaccine was then combined with tetanus and diphtheria and became uh, available in the U.S. The version that was developed is not the same one we have now. In the 1990s, a new version was released that had um, fewer side effects. We probably have both versions. Yes. Like one in infancy and one for our our childhood boosters. Yeah. Yeah. Parts of history, darling. (laughs) To to keep on with our note of how important it is uh, to have your vaccines, if possible... In July 2010, uh, the CDC noted that uh, pertussis cases reported to the California Department of Health between January 1st and January 30th, or June 30th, had increased by 418% over what had been reported the previous year. Whoa, whoa. Five times as many in a one-year span? Because an increase of 100% is doubled, etc. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It was like... 9,000 cases suddenly. 
Um, and 89% of that was among infants under six who were too young or six months who were too young to be fully immunized. Mm-hmm. Get your vaccines. Get your, get your vaccines. Help, help those who cannot get there. Or you're going to be killing babies. Because <laughs> they're too to be, young to get them. You're going to be contributing to the environment in which babies die. Yep. So, darling, what'd you learn? I love stories of uh, uh, medical developments and uh, just the, the mobilization of, of these vaccines because it, it paints a picture of a time when there were crises and there were people offering solutions and there was a public will to enact those solutions on a great scale. Mm-hmm. In the 30s, 40s, and 50s, like vaccines were essentially sold uh, to the people, they, they were advertised, they were presented, there was a, a huge public information push uh, for, for each new one that came out to yeah. solve a, a problem of the past that, that caused death and debility. Mm-hmm. If it happened before, it can happen again. There's no reason we can't mobilize that same will for gun violence, for climate change, for refixing the problem of vaccines. <laughs> And I think the thing that's interesting is because, like, during these times, there was a lot of, you know, media support and posters and things like, remember to get your immunization, remember to do mm-hmm. this, remember to do that. And there has been over the years. And it's easy to kind of think, like, oh, that's a different time. Oh, it's not really necessary. Oh, we don't have to worry about, you know, pertussis. But I'm like, last year, I remember there were commercials on the TV that I'd never, ever seen before <laughs> that were talking about the dangers of it. And that's mm-hmm. because there was a rising trend. Yeah. On the radio, I hear commercials about hepatitis A vaccines all the time because there was an outbreak of it in one of the suburban areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's easy to kind of like block it out and not really realize, but it's like the reason those ads are out there is because there's a rising trend in people getting it it's mm-hmm. not just because like mm-hmm. we want you to pay for another vaccine it's like this is a health crisis vaccines lose money yeah like <laughs> it's easy to not think about it that way but like if you're seeing an a public announcement about doing it yeah it means there's a problem i mean yeah if if the medical establishment wanted to make money off of you they'd let you get diphtheria intubation there's some profit to be made there (laughs) exactly um they can make more money off of us being sick i don't know if this will be a series but i was kind of like (laughs) i was originally planning to look at at more things Mm -hmm. and then that's just too much and so i narrowed it down (laughs) just to one vaccine and i was like cool i'll talk about these diseases so i don't know maybe the mmr is next maybe maybe And with that, we're going to take a quick break and be back with letters. Hello, everybody. Hello. Uh, Before we get to the letters, we just had to fact check ourselves a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. Three people said that Balto was their favorite historical dog. Yep. I knew there was at least one. Not surprised there was three, actually. So thank you to Blumen, Rebecca, and One Fine Cat in chronological order. <laughs> but on to much more recent letters. Sam writes in and uh, he answers a few recent prompts. 
but starts with a story uh, about the creation of uh, cornflakes and Dr. John Henry Kellogg. Kellogg was a, a noted uh, expert at the time uh, in his career uh, for the, the care of, of people who were mentally troubled. And everything uh, that has come out about the, the science of the human brain sense points to him being, well, a little troubled himself, or at least incredibly off the mark. Yeah. Uh, so cornflakes are began as a, a treatment, I suppose, as, as a therapy. The, the idea was to create the blandest food possible uh, so that when they were eaten, uh, any sort of urges or, or emotions would, would not be excited because you'd just be eating the, the simplest thing you could. No flavors, no, no sugars, no excitement mm-hmm. to, to rile up the blood. Uh, th- this is a similar story to the graham cracker. But then you put some chocolate and some marshmallow on it, and it's great. Exactly. You see, Dr. Kellogg's brother uh, was uh, actually good at his job, which was <laughs> selling things in order to keep the whole family business going. So he just coated that thing in sugar, and it became a hit. Mm-hmm. As for favorite origin story, Sam wants to talk about Spider-Man, uh, an origin story that, of course, establishes his character and abilities, as any good story does, but also the themes that have, have carried the, the character forward. Duty, sacrifice, placing uh, the well-being of others above his own, and generally just having really rotten luck. <laughs> Sam also uh, wants to talk about about becoming a fan of Heather's The Musical, particularly uh, JD's first big number, Freeze Your Brain. Uh, he can relate because a little bit of brain freeze does help with migraines, at least momentarily. So thanks, Sam. Andy writes in for the first time, but has been a longtime listener, and wants to share that they loved your Everything podcast. Aw, thank you. Uh, And uh, shared about how they caught a few references early on, kind of thought they were throwaway jokes, and then caught on as it went (laughs) on and on. Yeah, I I like the whole play-by-play Andy sent, but I, I do appreciate everybody who wrote in to say... You know when the when the jig was up and yeah. how different they all were. Yeah. I, I don't think I got a lot of repeats no. in those stories. Uh, yeah, so it's been fun to see what people said. Yeah. So thank you, Andy. Thank you. Peter writes in, and their favorite uh, deadly disease is bacterial meningitis. Oh, yay! Bacterial meningitis is what we call it when any number of bacteria. Uh, will infect the meninges, uh, which is the name of the protective surrounding layers of the spinal cord and brain, to cause inflammation. And the inflammation causes a lot of very serious symptoms in people, and in, ser- in serious cases, including death. Now, one common symptom is bruise-like markings on the skin that don't vanish when subjected to pressure by a shot glass. Yes, this is a medical science thing. Oh, boy. Use what you have on hand, I guess. What was that day in the hospital like? <laughs> but that doesn't always happen with men- bacterial meningitis. It is not a foolproof test. It would be really nice to have a, a perfect, fast-acting, foolproof test, though, because uh, there are times when a person can be well in the morning and dead uh, at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew someone growing up that had, that got it. They made a good recovery, but it was, it was t- very rough there for a while. 
non-fatal cases can still cause uh, loss of sight, loss of hearing, even loss of limbs. So why is this nasty piece of business Peter's favorite? Well, because his father got it a, a few Christmases ago. And it's a good thing Peter was around because his dad had to be in the hospital for about two months. Uh, and thankfully, he's fully recovered with the help of his family. So, so congratulations, Papa Peter. And we, we are all joining uh, uh, our, our good friend uh, in being thankful for his recovery. Mm-hmm. Emily writes in, uh, sharing that their uh, friend Kevin introduced them to the show and has been working through the backlog, so is answering several prompts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emily's favorite couple is Richard and Jaquetta Woodville, who were the grandparents of the princes in the tower. From Richard the Third fame. Yes. Uh, and they had apparently a really cool love story. He was uh, her first husband's squire. Aww. Uh, favorite detective, Andrea... Munford, who investigated Larry Nasser. Yeah, I mean, we said a lot of nice things about Michigan State University. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah. It's got some rough things. <laughs> a whole They're... lot of people in a whole lot of their uh, uh, athletic programs yeah. are, are sex pests. Yeah. abusers of various stripes. How about that? Emily's favorite activist is Rachel Den Hollander, uh, the first uh, survivor to come forward from... The abuse suffered from Larry Nasser. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite Australian, Casey Chambers, a country music artist. And favorite live action Disney movie, The Big Green. <laughs> I don't know that one. It's, Im- imagine if the Mighty Ducks was soccer. Oh, that's why I don't know it. I don't like soccer. Uh, the same way that um, Little Giants was the Mighty Ducks, but football. I like the Little Giants. And um, the replacements was the Mighty Ducks, but football and adults. I never saw that. Uh, it had Keanu Reeves in it. Oh. Although I guess Major League was the Mighty Ducks, but baseball and adults, and before the Mighty Ducks came out. So. <laughs> Thank you, Emily, for writing in, and uh, good luck with the backlog. You got yeah. a lot to go. I hope you enjoy us reading your letter eventually <laughs> when you catch up to it. Thanks, Emily. One Fine Cat writes in once again with a three-point letter, so let's take them in order. Okay. Their favorite deadly disease is uh, The Thing from John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> I mean, it's infectious. It, there's there's a blood test. Yeah, you know. There you go. Hey, it works. Yeah. A favorite origin story. Uh, got, this is a, a split answer. One for Superman, last son of Krypton, the, the, the greatest immigrant tale of all time. Two, uh, Wonder Woman, uh, the, the creation of a psychologist, feminist, polyandrist, and, and BDSM advocate, uh, William uh, Molst- Michael Marston, Molston Marston. There's something with an M in there that one fine cat did not include. Uh, <laughs> he intended Wonder Woman to, to be a... a Basically, the first strong female character, you know, teaching young girls to to just kick ass and punch Nazis, fight for their rights, but also demonstrating the the liberatory power of surrendering to to the playful domination of femininity. Okay. Yeah. Those Golden Age books are wild, y'all. Yeah. Sounds like it. 
And uh, the point where one fine cat caught on what was happening in our uh, April Fool's episode with, with this quote of mine, I guess I shall repeat myself. If there were an alien conspiracy hiding in the shadows of human memory, I say we should shoot them all on sight. <laughs> And you didn't like that no, bit when I... we recorded it. You thought it was so out of character for me to say. And I said, no, it'll help. It's a direct quote from an episode. I think <laughs> I think a lot of people will he'll catch on at this point. Yeah. So who's laughing now? Thanks, One Fine Cat. Uh, Joe writes in, and their favorite disease is capitalism. <laughs> a vile human creation that sucks the life and happiness out of the lucky ones and literally kills and maims the unlucky. And uh, Joe also shares their favorite biological disease being arthritis because they love uh, nothing more than randomly being unable to move and making nearby children think they have a bunch of firecrackers. I'm going to guess I'm going to go out on a, on a wild limb here and say that these are both sarcastic responses. I think so. And that they do not actually enjoy these two things very much at all. No. Thanks, Joe. Claritic writes in, once again, skirting the uh, uh, main thrust of your prompt response, due, due to good taste. <laughs> and uh, Apparently, I don't have any. Rather than a deadly disease, she talks about a, a favorite case of likely mass hysteria, the dancing plagues of the Middle Ages. Yes. These were a series of events where people would just dance and cavort and frolic in in medieval towns, the the most famous of which was the Strasbourg Dancing Plague of July 1518. One woman left her house and started dancing in the street nonstop, sans accompaniment. By the end of the week, it was 30 people. By the end of the month, it was hundreds. And yes, it lasted for months. People died from heart attacks, exhaustion, injury, uh, exposure to the elements. Uh, when you're dancing for a month straight, the, the human body is not made to do this. And of course, no one had any decent explanations for what was happening. The, the authorities let them continue in the hope that, well, they'll get tired eventually. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll go eat. They'll go sleep. It, that wasn't always the case, unfortunately. So as they, they were left and, and given space to, to, you know, dance the night away, uh, that space allowed the group to grow and continue. Uh, but one day it, it worked. The, the survivors stopped and, and went back to their lives and the plague was over. It ended with as little explanation as, as it began. Uh, but she also chimes in with, with her story of listening along to that past episode and Claire Tick, thank you for, for recognizing the talents of Wang Chiang, a story that I dearly love, and I'm afraid every time I say it, it makes me sound like a big racist. Mm-hmm. I like it for all the other parts. Yeah. Uh, Jeff writes in and shares some pictures of his dog Phineas. Out on a hike. Yeah. Uh, Jeff also uh, shares that your, your episode, your past episode, mm-hmm. the history of everything, mm-hmm. Makes them hope that there will be some more episodes for life and the universe in the future. To, to complete the set? Yeah. Okay. To answer this uh, episode's prompt, 
for deadly disease, they are going with smallpox because it was a horrifying disease um, that due to science-based medicine has been wiped out. Mm -hmm. Here's hoping that there are more that will be as well. Yeah. Really close with diphtheria, frankly. Yeah. Not related to the show. Uh, <laughs> Jeff's uh, book club is reading What the Eyes Don't See. I mean, it's kind of related to the show. Uh, we, we had listeners send in recommendations. Yeah. Many, many months ago. <laughs> this is true. Um, this book is by Mona Hannah Atisha, the physician who did research and came forward and basically put out there about what was going on with Flint's water, Flint, Michigan's lead poisoned water. Mm -hmm. But I guess if anyone wants to learn more about that, uh, you can read the book along with Jeff, What the Eyes Don't See. By Mona Hannah Atisha. So thanks again to everybody who wrote in. Uh, If you would like to send us a note, where can those go, dear? Uh, historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your stories, your questions, your your uh, corrections, and also responses to our episodic prompts. Darling, uh, do you have a prompt? For next time, I would like to hear people's favorite playwright. Ooh. Yeah. Get, getting back to another one of our wheel houses. We have so many houses full of so many wheels. And again, that address is... Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And while you're hanging out there, why don't you visit our Twitter, our Facebook, our Instagram? These are all places where you can get in touch with us and, and join the conversation. Start a conversation. Conversate. And you can do that at History Honeys. At all three of those platforms. I promise I won't put any gross medical pictures up on the Instagram. What pictures are you going to put on the Instagram? I don't know. I should go find some. I have been neglecting it. I'm sorry. Last episode, even though everything before the break was a joke, everything after it was real, including me recommending y'all go check out Fellowship Second Edition on Kickstarter. It's been doing fantastically well, but more than that, it's a book you're going to want to have in your life. It's three going on four books you're going to want to have in your life, in fact. Whoa! We just uh, spent some time last night visiting friends, and I we, we took a meal break in the middle of our activities, and I use that time to, to do a pitch to the whole table. I, I believe in this game, and I think y'all are going to like it. Uh, you can leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever else you download us. I really wish you would. You can also tell your friends. I be, really wish you would. Be like Kevin. Be like Kevin. Kevin told Emily. Uh-huh, and now we have Emily here, and we love having her around. Yes. Has a Kevin ever written in? We have had several Kevins write in. Don't know if it's the same one. Don't know if it's a different one. (laughs) This could be our third third, uh, confirmed Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like at this point we need a diagram when people write in. (laughs) While we go uh, put together our Kevin corkboard... uh, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.